such a good day. And, and um, you know, last week we talked about John the Baptist baptizing people. We got to, on Saturday, baptize 15 of our church family. And then today, Jesus gets baptized. So it's pretty great how it's all working out. And I'm really excited to go through this with you. Um, I, by the way, I'm Mark. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you yet, um, I'd love to get, get a chance to chat with you. Um, I'm just, man, I'm excited. Like, God is doing these powerful, amazing things um, and, and seeing these, these people getting baptized, that's such a big picture of it. Um, for, for me, like coming back, having three months off for sabbatical, coming back and just seeing, man, there's like, we're just bursting. We're, we're overflowing with like this love and this life that's just coming. And I just, I love seeing it. That, that last song, by the way, um, was a song that Jalise and, and Heidi had written. And it just, I love that, these expressions of like, God is doing stuff here in our hearts and it's flowing out. I, I love it. Um, okay, so while, while we're going to go through the Gospel of Mark, if you want to open your Bibles uh, to Mark, you can. Mark chapter 1. I'll put the verses on the screen for us. But um, while, I was, while I was out for, for three months, we, one of the things we did is uh, Laura and I got to take the girls to Washington, D.C. on a trip. And in Washington, D.C., every, everywhere you go and pretty much everything you see has all this like crazy historical significance. Some of the highlights for us was we got to see um, the actual Declaration of Independence, which is crazy to see. The actual Constitution of the United States, un- unbelievable with, with like their, like they wrote that document. That document mattered and, and changed, uh, shaped what our nation is. Um, we got to see things like the, uh, the flag, the massive flag that inspired the Star Spangled Banner, you know. And so you're in this like location, this place in the world where you're seeing all these like really key um, artifacts, I suppose, that, that are like part of the, this massive story that shapes us around the events of 1776 and the birth of the, the, this country that I love so much and that shapes, um, you know, how we, how we live and just such a beautiful thing. Um, and, and these are stories. So as you're there in Washington, D.C., we get to talk to the, to the girls about these stories and, and you're telling and retelling these stories and they're really meaningful stories. Um, last week, well, when, when, you know, we went through Mark chapter one, I was driving um, home with my daughter, Claire, who's uh, who's 11, and um, she was she was asking, she's like, Dad, how come at church uh, we always talk so much about Israel and about the Jews? And I was like, you are brilliant. That is such a good question. It made me really proud of like our kids ministry and our youth and everything that um, that like she's asking questions like, why do we why do we always talk about that? And 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 I got to talk to her about how like the the reason we do is because Jesus is like Jesus is what matters to us. Jesus saves. We have it on our wall. Like it's it's what we're proclaiming. Jesus is what matters. But Jesus came um, historically set. Like he came in the midst of a bigger story, the story of this nation of Israel. Like he came um, in that setting in a, in a, a specific time in history at a specific part of the world, and his story is intertwined with that. And this morning, um, as we go through, there's going to be a lot more Israel and and um, the Jewish nation type of stories because we're, um, we're seeing what Jesus does. From the moment that Jesus steps onto the scene, he is um, pulling on the, the story of Israel in these unique ways. Israel would keep telling and retelling the stories of their origins and, and, um, and how things developed, and they would do it uh, in a way that Jesus comes and embodies. So specifically for us this morning, there's the creation story, and they would talk about how God created the world and shaped everything. Um, out of nothing, he created our, our world and us as human beings. Um, they would tell the Exodus story when they were slaves in Egypt and God led them out of slavery. Um, he would tell that story, they would tell that story over and over again, mark it with feasts and Passovers to remember what had happened. They would talk about the kingdom of God and, and specifically King David um, as the, the kind of key figure ruling over it all. And so these stories would be told and retold. And what's cool about this morning 
is we get to meet Jesus for the first time in the Gospel of Mark. It's only the second week, but here he comes onto the scene, and we get to see how Mark tells the story of Jesus arriving in a way that pulls in all these stories. So let's, let's get started. First thing we see Jesus do is he comes through the water, he gets baptized. So verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So here Jesus walks in and, and despite like any sort of American sense we have about who Jesus is or, or any like um, of our own sort of baggage of like what we grew up hearing about Jesus, we're going to let Mark just tell us who Jesus is. He's introducing us. Mark, John's been baptizing in the wilderness. Jesus walks in, and we see the first thing Jesus does is get baptized, which, which if we think about it for a minute, is kind of weird. Like it's kind of weird that Jesus get baptized. Because remember, uh, John was there, and he's baptizing. And what's the baptism about? It's about repentance, and it's about the forgiveness of sins. You remember that from last week? So repentance, forgiveness of sins, one thing we know about Jesus um, already, and we'll find out as the story goes on, is Jesus has no sin. Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus needs no repentance. Um, he needs no forgiveness for his sins because he is, the, he is God himself, and he's the one and only human that's ever lived that doesn't need this repentance. So what was Jesus doing when he got baptized? Well, um, what I believe Jesus was doing, there's a couple things. One is he was showing solidarity with the rest of us. Like he's standing there, um, not above us, not just to tell us what to do, but he's here to be one of us and to walk with us. And so Jesus getting baptized, he's saying, okay, hey, we're all preparing ourselves for the coming of the kingdom. And so I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to get baptized as well, showing that I am coming through this whole thing with you. Um, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah was looking ahead to this servant that was going to come on behalf of the nation of Israel, suffer on their behalf. Um, and lead them to the Lord. And in Isaiah 53, he talks about how he is numbered among the sinners, numbered among the transgressors. So it's Jesus coming and he's saying, yeah, I am, I am one of you guys. Sure, he hasn't sinned, but he's one of us. And so he comes through that whole thing. The second thing I want to point out here is uh, Jesus also, though, was telling a story in his actions here. And so we're going to see three kind of elements of the story. Jesus comes through the water. We're going to see him go through the wilderness. And then we're going to see him going, uh, leading people into the kingdom of God. So one of the big stories, as I just said, was the Exodus. And what, what happened was Israel was enslaved in Egypt. God came, sent Moses, led them out, and they came, and they, had to, they were stuck at the Red Sea. And remember, Moses parts the waters, and they walk, the whole nation walks miraculously through the sea. That's what they do. They go through the sea. And then they go, and they, they meet God at Mount Sinai, and they spend 40 years in the wilderness. And then when those 40 years in the wilderness are over, uh, he leads them into the promised land, which becomes the kingdom of Israel. So through the water, through the wilderness, into the kingdom, that's the journey. And Jesus, I believe, is coming to walk that journey himself, to show the people I am, I am one of you. I am, I am coming as an Israelite to lead Israel into um, the kingdom once again. Um, he's coming as a human being to walk as we are walking and to lead us. I, I just love that Jesus comes not just to show us a solution, but to walk with us and be the solution for us, walking, um, not just instructing us, but being with us in the midst of it. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus does. So he gets baptized. And baptism, we'll find later, and, and we talked about yesterday uh, as we baptized our, our um, family members. Baptism is actually a picture of death. It's like a, it's like a picture of Jesus was uh, eventually 
dies and he is buried. He's under the ground and then he comes up in new life. Well, baptism is that picture, under the water, buried like Jesus, up again in in new life as Jesus was. It's beautiful the way Mark tells the story because the moment we meet Jesus, we get this little foreshadowing of what's going to come. He's going to be buried. He's going to come alive again. This picture begins even now. We see the hints of the whole thing. So we see Jesus. We just met him. This is the first time he's shown up in Mark. He walks on the scene. Immediately as soon as we meet Jesus, we also meet the Spirit of God. So when Jesus comes out of the water, immediately he sees the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. So we meet Jesus. We meet also the Spirit of God, another member of the Trinity. And he sees the, the heavens are torn open. It's like Jesus is baptized, and then right there, it's like, it's like right in front of him. And the, the heavens are just even the atmosphere around him. It just opens up, and out of, out of this comes the Spirit of God coming down like a dove. I would love to know what that looked like. Like, what did, what did Jesus see when he saw this? But whatever it is, he's just right there. He's at hand. He's, he's coming. He's there, present with him. And the Spirit comes um, sort, of, sort of on to Jesus. Whatever that looked like, whatever that felt like, that's what happened. He's described as coming down like a dove, which, again, like, what would that have looked like? In all this story, there's all these, these resonances. There's all these echoes, okay? And so um, I think that the original readers of this, the people that are listening to Mark tell his story in his gospel, would have, okay, the spirit coming down like a dove, I think they would have brought to mind Genesis 1 and the creation story, where God speaks, and out of nothing, the, the, the land and the, the waters and the light and the darkness, and over the whole thing, as in the beginning God creates the heaven and, and the earth, we see the Spirit of, of God is there, and what is the Spirit doing? He is hovering over the face of the waters, which is a very unusual like, term. Like, what is he doing, like, just hovering over it? But it's this picture of a bird-like flapping of wings, in a sense, right? He's there. So here Jesus, this act of new creation and new life that he's bringing into the world, here's the Spirit, and once again, he's like a dove. Once again, he's sort of hovering over the whole thing. And, um, and basically what he's doing is he's anointing Jesus. Jesus is here, and he's being anointed for his task. Isaiah, we're going to keep coming back to Isaiah again and again. Mark opened with a quote from Isaiah, but Isaiah looked ahead in Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 42, he's talking about the servant that's going to come, and he's the Spirit of the Lord is going to be on him. He's going to be anointed with God's Spirit, and we see that happening with Jesus here, the Spirit and resting on him and empowering him, giving him strength and power for what's coming, for the mission um, that, that, that God is giving to him. So we meet the Son, we meet the Spirit instantly, and then also instantly we meet the Father, God the Father in this. In verse 11, this voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It's God um, speaking, the Father from heaven speaking and telling him, like Jesus as he comes up, you're my Son, you're my beloved Son, I am well pleased in you. And it's this beautiful, um, beautiful picture of all three members of the Trinity. They're in this together, um, and they start the whole thing. I, I, what you're seeing, and, and, and you, might, you might feel like I'm a little um, conspiracy theorist with like all the connections, but I think this is how it worked. I think Mark is intentionally trying to make connections to everywhere in the, in the Bible. Um, my, my excellent example of this is from one of my favorite bands, um, which is Radiohead. Okay, I know most of you are like, yes, mine too. And, um, and uh, Radiohead has uh, this song called Everything in Its Right Place. And the way that he does this song is he um, sings his vocals and then just like, loops and echoes it like crazy. So as the song builds, you have all the elements of the first parts of the song just kicking around the whole thing. And the, the result 
is really beautiful. Um, I, I am convinced maybe like 25% of you will go listen to it and agree, and then the rest of you will probably be like, no, this is really not very good, um, which I, is what I'd expect. But it's brilliant. It's like so cool how it all builds, and the echoes like actually make it cooler, and, and you hear the whole thing. If you don't like that Radiohead example, um, think of like Gregorian chant, okay? The monks singing in these old monasteries, and their voices, they're continuing to sing new words, but all the echoes from the words they sang before are just coming and filling it in. Or if you'd prefer, um, modern musicals do that often with little vocal, uh, uh, you know, resonance with a, a line or a song earlier in the whole thing. It's beautiful when it builds. And I think that the way that the um, Old Testament writers and then the New Testament writers, the way they work together is there's these, these songs, these lines that were sung so long ago, and they stayed in the national memory of this people, and they echoed around. And as these New Testament writers are talking about what they saw happen with Jesus, it's like they can't help but include some of those echoes in it. And the whole thing builds. So when, when the Father comes and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Um, he, is, he is saying to him, he's quoting something from Isaiah 2, or sorry, I'm sorry, from Psalm chapter 2. Today, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. It's a, it's a picture of the Messiah that's going to come, the ruler that's going to come, and God's um, owning him as my anointed one, my chosen one, my son, the one that's going to do uh, my will on this earth. There's a few times in the story that we get a picture of uh, of Jesus being referenced as the Son of God. It doesn't happen as often in Mark as we'd think, um, but it happens here as he's baptized at the very beginning. It happens about midway through in the transfiguration when Jesus is shown in all of his glory and God's voice once again saying, this is my Son. It happens again at the crucifixion when Jesus is being crucified and it's actually a Roman soldier that says, surely this is the Son of God. We get these pictures uh, of affirmation of who Jesus is as the chosen one of God. Another little echo here, another thing that we see that the original hearers, I think, would have heard in this is when he says, beloved son, there's a famous story, one and only one famous story in the Old Testament where the word beloved son is used, and that is Abraham and Isaac. And he, Abraham is called upon to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. And of course, in that case, uh, there's a ram that God provides so that Isaac doesn't have to die. In this case, here is the beloved son once again, but this time Jesus himself is the ram that is offered, uh, the sacrifice that's substituted. So, so all of this, like we, we're being introduced to Jesus, and there's this picture of like all three members of the Trinity that are there and just saying, this is good, we're in this, this is right, like he is the chosen one. And we have to see at the very beginning, as soon as we meet Jesus, we see that actually he has everything that we are longing for. Everything that we as human beings have ever longed for, any human that's ever lived at any time has longed for is like, we want acceptance. We want to belong. We want to be, um, we want to be accepted. And we, we want that like from our earthly fathers. We want that at the highest possible level. To, and, and so ultimately from God himself, we want to be accepted. Well, here's Jesus coming on the scene and the father is saying, He's my beloved. I'm well pleased in him, right? He's got the full acceptance of the Father. And so we see in Jesus, oh man, he has what we want. So often in life, we go through life and we're frustrated because we can't control the events. We're not strong enough to get through or to do what we think needs to be done. Um, and so here's Jesus at the very beginning, and the Spirit of God is coming on him, um, anointing him, empowering him. So he's got this greater than human strength as he begins the whole thing. Jesus, we're seeing, as soon as we meet him, this one's got it all. He is the approval of God and, and, the, and the power of God, and he's going to walk into this world. What we see with Jesus from the beginning is, man, he's got what I need. He's got what I long for. So we're attracted to him. We're wanting to follow him. 
what we'll find as the story unfolds is he came specifically for us to show us what that looks like and to invite us to experience also the acceptance of God, the empowerment of God. We get invited into the beautiful thing that God is doing with Jesus. I think a decent summary of the whole book of Mark as we walk through is that everything we need gets embodied in Jesus and then provided for us uh, through Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, so in the Exodus, they went through the Red Sea and then they found themselves in the wilderness. Jesus came through the water being baptized. Then he goes through the wilderness as well. So here in verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So this brief little account, if you read Matthew or Luke, there's much more said about this temptation period in the wilderness. Um, they spell out like, okay, Satan was there. There's a dialogue between Satan and Jesus. He talks about the specific temptations of like, I'll give you all the power, the, the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you the food that you need. You know, like Satan's offering all this stuff. But Mark isn't very concerned about the details. Mark is just telling us like, you can tell that Mark wasn't a preacher because he d says less than he needs to. You know what I'm saying? He's just like to the point and he just gets it done. He's in a hurry. Like Mark, you get the sense that he's in a hurry to, to give you all the key pieces but not linger because he's trying to get you somewhere else. So already we've seen twice the word immediately. You see with, throughout the book of Mark, he's just immediately, immediately, immediately. He's just saying everything happened so quick um, and after. And what we see, okay, the Spirit of God came upon him and then what the Spirit does with Jesus is he drives him out into the wilderness. He doesn't gently invite him in, um, doesn't, doesn't like nudge him and give him a spiritual prompting to go into the wilderness, but the, the Spirit drives Jesus out um, into the wilderness. Interestingly, again with the echoes, um, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned, they were in the garden, and then because they sinned, they were driven out of the garden into the wilderness, the world outside of the garden. Adam failed his temptation and was driven out of the garden into the wilderness. Well, Jesus now is here and he's got God's acceptance and he's standing in the wilderness. He's driven out into the wilderness, but he uh, succeeds when he's tested and tempted and he begins to lead people back into the garden or the kingdom. All these echoes, you can decide what is meaningful to you or not, but I think the echoes are there and we, it does, we do well to like consider and weigh and, and compare these different parts of the whole thing. But the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. Uh, the, the, like, it's an intense battle. Um, but, but, but notice it's initiated by the Spirit of God. So Jesus is never, in this whole thing, Jesus is never at the mercy of Satan. Okay? He's never like, oh man, I didn't expect that. All right, I guess I'd better have to fight through this. No, the whole thing is initiated, led by the Spirit of God. God is in perfect control the entire time, brings Jesus there on purpose. And there's this, this, this battle, so to speak, um, that takes place uh, in the wilderness, initiated by God. And, and so he, he's here and following the Spirit into this thing. It's more difficult than, than if he had not gone out there, but he's there. He's tested uh, in the wilderness for 40 days, okay? And remember, Israel, when they went to the wilderness, 40 years, they're wandering in the, the wilderness. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. An interesting um, picture of, of like connection between Jesus and Israel, um, it's weird that Satan just appears on the scene, okay? So with like no introduction to him, no explanation of him. It's just like, oh yeah, well then Jesus was like with Satan. And you're like, wait, who now? Like who, who is this figure? Um, Satan was, we see in the Garden of Eden, another connection to that story. Satan was like, 
Adam and Eve are in this perfect setting, and they're, they're in the garden that God had created, and then the, Satan comes. And Satan is, his name means the adversary, or it means the accuser. And so he's there to tempt, he's there to destroy, he's there to pull uh, God's creation away from God, he's there to, to hinder that. And so he sort of casually comes um, onto the scene here, and Jesus is having this encounter with him from the very beginning. What, what we know about Satan from the bigger picture of the Bible is um, his destruction is 100% sure. So Jesus is the one that crushes his head. That was foretold almost from the minute we meet him in Genesis 3. We're promised, okay, there's going to be one that comes that crushes the head of the serpent. We find out later that's Jesus himself. And we'll see in the Gospel of Mark how Jesus does that. In fact, Jesus is going to be whooping up on Satan and his forces throughout the entire book. So we get to see what it looks like. Um, the, the scarier reality is that Satan is still around. Um, his, his followers, his demons are still around. Like I, we, we, we're not as tuned into it as, as they were in the, the Gospel of Mark, as we'll see. Um, but I think the reality is he's still around. He's still fighting. We're still, there's these dynamics that we see, this power struggle between God and Satan that are taking place in our world today. Um, but what we will see, and we'll talk about all this stuff as we go through, what we're going to see is God is always in control. Jesus is infinitely more power than Satan is. Um, there, there's no sense in which it, it's not a fair fight whatsoever, but it is a real struggle. Um, and so we, following Jesus and his power, can engage in that battle as well. We can resist the temptation in the, in the battle that's, that's around us. But Mark, as he puts this in here, he's showing Jesus in the wilderness. He, notice that he doesn't say anything about, like, who won this test. He doesn't talk about, like, the outcome of the conflict. He's just showing there is this conflict. And we know from the other ones that Jesus definitely um, comes out victorious in this whole thing. But it's like a minor point in this. And he kind of moves on. Um, and so the whole point is Jesus is just out there. And he's, he's in this battle. And this battle is going to be played out throughout the Gospel of Mark. We'll see um, what it looks like. But Jesus just kind of um, walks out of this um, into the wilderness and back out of it again. Um, and so this, this picture of Jesus just uh, resisting through the wilderness time, coming back, he's victorious, but they don't make a big deal about that. Um, now we're going to step in and we're going to see, okay, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's showing us this picture of being baptized, going through the water, uh, being in the wilderness and, and coming out of that, still following God, uh, like the 40 days or the 40 years in the wilderness. And then what happened with Israel? They go into the promised land. They go into the kingdom. And that's exactly what Jesus brings us back to in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus now back into civilization, and, and he's almost like really in passing, he, you know, Mark's telling us John was arrested. We want to know details. Other gospels share more details. He'll actually revisit John a little bit later on. Um, but it's like Mark's like, I don't really care so much about John right now. I just need to tell you about Jesus and what he was doing. And so here comes Jesus, um, and Jesus coming uh, into Galilee, into like, he's not going into the heart of Israel. He's not going into Jerusalem or the most like important places. He's starting on the outside skirts where it's like some believers, some kind of pagan stuff, but he's going there. Um, and as he finds people, he's beginning to proclaim, okay, the time is fulfilled. Like you guys have been waiting a long time. The time is now. Now it's actually going to happen. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's close by. It's, it's um, attainable. It's achievable. You can grasp the kingdom of God. It's here. And we're going to find Jesus is offering this kingdom um, to the people. And so he's proclaiming now and through the rest of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can grasp it. You can experience it. It's here for you. 
This is his main message. This is the heart of the whole thing. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is going to keep unpacking it in what he does, the, the, like the, the miracles, the, the battles, the things that like, you'll see the kingdom in what Jesus does. You'll see the, the kingdom in Jesus' ways, like, like how he holds himself and how he, um, how he just is in the world. We see the kingdom embodied in that. And we're going to see it in his words as he tells parables about what the kingdom of God is like. But he's saying, this is here. It's offered to you. It's at hand. You can experience the kingdom of God. Now, there's, there's a there's debate over what the kingdom of God actually is, okay? And the main kind of things are, if you think of a kingdom, you might think of uh, the place, like the realm, okay? So like, think of the kingdom of Great Britain. It's a, it's a place in the world that you can find on a map. It's the realm over which uh, the king rules, okay? Or it might be the people, the subjects um, that, that are, you know, under the reign of the king. That's the, the people in the kingdom. The kingdom is the people itself, or you might say that the kingdom is like the rule of the sovereign. The rule of the king is the kingdom. And I think actually all three of them make sense. There's an element of all three of them. But I feel like that main sense of it that, that makes the most sense with the gospel of Mark is it's the rule of God. Remember when, when Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he says, we, we, he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, and then the next lines, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I think he's saying there's this reign, this rule of God where his will is done perfectly in heaven. And so when we pray for his kingdom to come, we're praying that his will that's done in heaven would also be done on earth. I think it's the emphasis is on the rule of God. So that, that's the ways of God. The way that, the way that God wants to rule and order, order uh, society and us as human beings, like that's what the kingdom of God looks like. So of course... When Jesus was here on earth, that man, the kingdom, he's like, the kingdom is like right here because Jesus is there and he's, he's inviting people to experience the rule of God, the good rule of God. Um, I believe that the, the reign, uh, the, the kingdom of God is still at hand for us now. Um, Jesus is not here, but I think we can still grasp it and see God's will being done on earth. I think it's still available to us. And I believe ultimately there's a time when that kingdom is going to be here in a fuller sense even than it is now. But I think that invitation to experience the kingdom of God is still available to us. We're going to see that as we go through the gospel. Um, but it's a beautiful invitation for us to simply say, okay, yes. Like, I, we have to wrestle with ourselves and say, okay, Jesus is saying the kingdom is, is at hand. If it's at hand, if it's right here and I can attain it, do I want it? Like, what would it look like for me to lay hold of this kingdom that's being offered? Do I actually want that? It leaves us with an invitation to respond to the whole thing. And that's what Jesus leaves us with here. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what do we do? We repent and we believe in the gospel. Repent means we, we let go of the things. Like the, the, every path we've been on, everything that's made sense to us about what's the right thing to do in life, we see, okay, these have ended in so many dead ends. We, a couple of years, could it have been a couple of years ago? Was it a year ago? We walked through Ecclesiastes and all of Ecclesiastes is about try every path you can to find fulfillment, fulfillment and to find happiness, and you're going to find that every bit of it lets you down. There's only one path, and that is fearing God, keeping his commandments. Well, I think it's the same thing when Jesus offers the kingdom. We've got to repent and say, yeah, everything I've tried, the, the, the bad things, the drugs, the sex, the rock and roll, like that doesn't fulfill. Uh, the good things, finding meaning in my family, finding meaning in, in my, uh, my job, my career, uh, finding meaning in being a good church person, like all these things are going to let us down. So repent of all of it. Let go of it. Lo loosen your grip. That's what we talked about last week with John's baptism saying, it's all a dead end. I'm going to loosen my grip on this whole thing. And what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to believe the gospel. I'm going to believe the good news, which, which is like, here comes God with his gospel. The gospel of God is like, 
It's the good news that Jesus tells to us. It's the good news that Jesus embodies. Um, and it's saying there's a new way to be in the midst of this world. There, there's a new way to act and live. And I mean, the, the, the idea of repenting, of, of repenting and instead believing the good news of Jesus is always important. It's always poignant. But I'll say it's ex- especially poignant when we come to United States elections. And here we are, we're like, we've got a little more than 12 months to like sit through another one of these election cycles that we've, we've come to know are rough. Like these days are just going to be rough. So who knows what's in store for us for the next 12 months. I guarantee it's going to be crazy, okay? And as we step into that, there's this reminder for all of us, this call to say, okay, are we going to repent and believe the gospel of God or are we going to believe the gospel of republicanism or democratism, right? Are we going to believe the gospel of America that like if we could just get the right person in office, if I could just get my values represented in my senators or in the, the, the judges or in whatever, then the world will be right. No, the election cycles remind us like Jesus calling us to see and believe, repent and believe in the kingdom is a reminder that even as we do our best to be good citizens, as we like weigh the arguments and, and, and see, okay, what is going to be best for our country? All that is very good and beautiful, and it's our right as American citizens. We should do that. We need to do that. But even as we do, we've got to check the idolatry in our hearts. Every candidate wants us to believe that, that what's wrong with the world is that they're not in power, and that what will be fixed in the world, it will only be fixed if they put themselves in power. And we know that's, that's, that's idolatry, right? That's not right. That's not actually true. Maybe the world will be better. Maybe some things will be functioning um, better. Maybe we can make a better lives for ourselves with a certain person in office. I believe all that's true. Jesus calls us to deeper down. What's our hope lying in? What are we investing? What is going to be the solution to all this? It has to be the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the king and that he's come to save us. That has to be it. That has to underlie, be a deeper truth to us about who we are uh, before our political convictions uh, come into be. Jesus' gospel, the good news that Jesus brings, the hard thing about this for us is the good news about Jesus is not good news for everybody. Okay, so think about um, what it's like for Jesus. To the people who are in power, and, and who want to hold on to that power, the good news about Jesus is actually bad news, okay? Because they like their power, and they want to hold on to their power, and Jesus is saying, the greatest among you is going to be the servant of everybody else, right? Jesus came as the powerful one that is the servant that's laying down his power, and so for those that have power and want to keep their power, the good news of Jesus is bad news. That's why um, the Roman Empire, Caesar, and the, the Roman leaders were saying, no, we cannot have Jesus because he's calling us to lay down our power. We can't have a threat to our power. We're going to keep it. We're going to put him to death. That's why the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, had their religious power, and they held on to it, and they said, no, we got to kill Jesus because he's trying to take the power away from us. The good news of Jesus is bad news to those that are trying to hold on to power. To, to people who are wealthy and finding their satisfaction in their wealth, the good news about Jesus is actually bad news because it's inviting them, calling them to let go of their wealth. Jesus is like really harsh on rich people, like wealthy, affluent people. He's like, it's hard to follow me in my kingdom if you're set on your affluence, okay? Which is going to be convicting for us. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's going to be hard for us to hear some of the things that Jesus calls us to because we are in an affluent area. We are an affluent people in general. And so it's bad news for us, like, oh, man, I've got to let go of this stuff that means so much to me. To people that are confident in their abilities and find their satisfaction and their way of getting through life uh, in their abilities, the gospel of Jesus is bad news because he's saying, hey, let go of yourself. Step outside of yourself. You need help from the outside. And so all of it, when Jesus announces, there's good news. My kingdom is at hand. We're going to find out what that means. We're going to find out what his kingdom looks like, but we're going to have to be asking ourselves starting now and week by week as we go, okay, uh, 
which, like, am I going to receive this as good news? Is my life going to be structured in such a way that when I hear what Jesus has to offer, that sounds like good news to me? Yes, that's what I've been waiting for. Yes, that's what I've been hoping for. Yes, that's what I'm finding my life in. Or are we going to be on the bad side where we find so many people in the gospel are so offended by Jesus. They're so angry about Jesus. They're so hurt by Jesus because what they want is anything but the good news that he offers. Uh, the invitation for us is to repent, to believe the gospel.